Well, as we've said several times now, what a week it has been. Uh, I wouldn't have known four months ago when, we, when I was asked to come to, to preach this morning that this would be the, the context in which I'm here. So it's a unique circumstance, but again, like I said, I'm glad to be here with you, especially now as you know, many of you have probably heard that larger churches in the area and throughout the country are shutting down. It's, it makes sense when you have well over a thousand people or five thousand people. Like one of my friends, who's a pastor, a youth pastor in, in Florida, their church is about five thousand. So, of course, they're shutting down. But thankfully, I think this is the benefit of having smaller churches. We can now still come and have this moment together. And so this morning I want to turn our attention, uh, maybe off the subject of the coronavirus, now to just the Bible. What does the Bible say? So I want to turn your attention to the book of Jude, and particularly verses 17 through 23. And I'll invite you to turn there. I'm not going to have it on the screen just so I can cause you to have the Bible in front of you. And Jude, as you, as you may know, is one of the more neglected books of the Bible. It often gets overshadowed by, by the other books, especially the book that it's closest to, Revelation. And so it often goes undiscussed. And one of the main reasons for this is that Jude is sort of a, a dark, hard letter. It's hard to read. It can leave us feeling like we've been punched in the face, or it can leave us feeling sort of confused or both at the same time. And so uh, it's a good book to turn to, though, because I think that it's actually more helpful than people uh, make it out to be. Um, Jude is actually not only helpful, and, but it's also reassuring. It helps us to, to come to grips with our assurance of salvation, knowing how we can take rest and refuge in the Lord, uh, especially in times of temptation, when we as Christians are, are fighting temptation in our lives. And so uh, we'll turn there this morning to verses, verses 17 through 23, but first let's go ahead and pray for the Lord's illumination. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, in whom alone dwells the fullness of all wisdom and light, we ask you this morning to enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit in the true understanding of your word. Give us grace that we may receive this word with true reverence and true humility. May it lead us to put our whole trust in you alone and may it motivate us to serve and honor you so that we may glorify your holy name and build up our neighbors with love. And because it has greatly pleased you to count us among your people, help us, O Lord, to give you the love and worship that you alone deserve. As children to you, our Father, and as servants to you, our Lord. And we ask this for the sake of our King, Jesus Christ, and in his holy name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear now the word of the living God from Jude 17 through 23. The apostle writes this, But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. 
Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. So before we can dive into our passage this morning, it's really helpful to know what the context is in which Jude is giving this message to remember what the apostles said, to build yourselves up and to rescue those from the fire who are struggling. Uh, So what is this context? Well, we find the context particularly in verse 4. That's the the main verse, verses 3 and 4, excuse me. And so we read there, if we just go up a little bit in, in the book of Jude, we read him say this, Dear friends, or beloved, although I was eager to write with you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. So he wants to write them about this common faith that they share in a joyous way, but he realizes that the situation demands that he writes them an urgent letter to wake them up. And so he continues on. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change or pervert or twist the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus, our only sovereign and Lord. And so there in verse 4, we find perhaps our biggest clue as to what is going on. These men pervert or twist the grace of God into a license to sin. And in so doing, as they now have rejected God's authority and taken on their own authority, they have denied Him. They've denied the Lord, Jesus Christ. And so... This passage clearly teaches that that grace is not just for our forgiveness, but grace is also for our transformation. And maybe these 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 uh, false teachers have read Romans three through five. They've got this astounding message of God's grace, and it has changed how they think. They've known that they are justified by the grace of God, but maybe. They forgot to read on into chapter 6, which just so happens to be the passage that Pastor Ken taught on last week. Chapter 6, Paul starts off by saying, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? So should we keep sinning? Because the more we sin, the more grace we will be given. By no means, he says, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? We've been baptized into the death of Christ and raised into his life. Grace is not just about the forgiveness, but it's also about this transformation. And so Paul is saying it's not meant to prolong our sin. Grace is not meant to just keep us okay with our sin. Grace is meant to break us out of the old person that we used to be. And so in all of this, these men are rejecting the Lordship of Christ. They are saying, we thank you for your grace, but we will now live how we want. And before we get ahead of ourselves, it's helpful for us to to stop and to wonder in what ways might this mentality be true of us. Theologians refer to this as antinomianism. I like to call it lazy Christianity. It's the belief that God's law no longer matters because of grace. And maybe it's not so much an actual theology taught by anyone in particular. There's no creed of the antinomians in which they expound their teachings. Antinomianism or lazy Christianity is usually an attitude that we have, a bad attitude that we have about God's grace. 
Methodist theologian Thomas Oden, great theologian whom I love, says that we can know lazy Christianity or antinomianism when we see people following this line of thinking. The line of thinking that says, if God loves you no matter what, then your own moral responses to God's acceptance of you make little or no difference. God is going to love you anyway. So assert your individual interests, express yourself, do as you please, and above all, do not repress any impulses. And so it's easy to see why this teaching is so threatening for the church, as it was back then and as it is today. It's because it's half true. And as Spurgeon once again said, Spurgeon would often say the difference or having discernment is knowing the difference not between what's right and wrong, but between what's right and what's almost right. So God does love you no matter what, and he is gracious and kind, and his nature is to forgive sins. This is a crucial part of the gospel. Of course we agree with with these things. But where these false teachers are going wrong is that they, they use God's grace as a license to promote continue and com- promote continued sin. And so the Bible, again, teaches that grace is not just about our justification, our being declared righteous before God, but grace is what God gives us all the way through life. It's not just from the moment of the beginning of the Christian life, and then at the end when we, when we enter into heaven, grace is God's gift to us in the meantime, in our lives as we live forward. In his commentary on Jude, John Calvin would write this about these false teachers. He writes, Jude says that they abused the grace of God so as to lead themselves and others to take an impure and profane liberty in sinning. But listen to what he says here. But the grace of God has appeared for a far different purpose. Even that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we may live soberly, righteously, and godly in this world. And so, contrary to such lazy Christianity or antinomianism, Orthodox Christianity sees God's grace as a way of fighting our sin and living righteously. And this is what Calvin means when he says that God's grace has appeared so that we may deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, and instead, in place of that, live soberly, righteously, and godly in this world. But again, we ought to be careful. History shows that that nobody is totally immune to this teaching. Often it's churches that grasp the good news of the grace of God, when they really revel in the grace that God gives us in forgiving our sins, These churches often can be the most prone to antinomianism. And this isn't isn't a condemnation of the grace of God. This is just to make us aware of God's grace. And it's particularly important because it's such an invasive species, you could say, in the church. It, It goes often unnoticed. It's so subtle. It's hard to catch. There's no church that has in its name the Reformed Antinomian Church of Christ or anything of that nature. And so what what Jude means by this is that it's sort of a parasitic false teaching creeping into the church. And this is why he said, for certain men have secretly slipped in among you. And though I don't wish to sound trite, this language helps us to see that this is often like a virus seeping in to the church. 
And so as uncomfortable as it may be, it should cause us to ask ourselves, in what ways have I believed that the lie that God's forgiveness frees me from obedience? Or in what ways may I believe that, that it's okay to sin because Jesus died for me? So what does it matter if I just sin a little bit more? In what ways have I become lax in my Christian walk because, I, because of my misunderstanding of the grace of God? Has His grace caused us to become lazy? And though it may sound ironic, as I've said, this, this attitude often encroaches Christian churches where there is this sort of deep and thorough understanding of Christianity. When we feel so different from the outside culture, it can become very easy for us to feel like we're doing enough to get by. We're living holy enough. You know, we go to church every Lord's Day, we might think, and we tithe. We, we sacrifice a lot in order to send our kids to Christian schools. We give to the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. So what's the big deal if I like to just get a little bit tipsy after a long day at work? Or if I like to flirt with that person at the office who's not my spouse? Or if I like to just blow up at the referee at the high school baseball game or the basketball game? Brandon, I'm looking at you back there. I'm sure you've felt that before. So when considered this way, maybe it would be better to call antinomianism a sinful attitude that we can begin to have when we, when we misunderstand the grace of God. And if this stings you a little bit to hear this, then good. That, that's the point of Jude's letter. It's meant to sting. It's meant to alarm and to awaken us to the ways in which we have given in to this attitude. And so once we grasp now the weight of this context, then we can now finally turn to the passage we've just read this morning and dive into what it says. And as we do, there's three real commands. There's sub-commands within those, but there's three headings for Jude's uh, letter here in these verses. And he says to remember, to build yourselves up, And to rescue others. So let's take a look at each one of these. Starting in verse 17. Remember what the apostles foretold. So this first call to action in 17 through 19 is to remember the warning of the apostles that in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. This is actually a quote from 2 Peter 2 or 3 3, and Jude mentions it to us to give added weight to his meaning and to his warning. He's basically saying, Look, I'm not off my rocker. The apostle Peter has himself given this warning. And so he then explains these false teachers are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts, and do not have the Spirit. So by connecting the apostles' warning to these false teachers in this context, Jude is reassuring his readers that God is not surprised by their coming. God knew that they would come. They weren't disrupting his sovereign plan or thwarting his will. Jude is helping his people to see that because God is still in control, there is still hope. And this is an important message for us this morning to have. Because God is in control, he knows all There is hope, even when we do not know. So from this vantage point of hope, he then turns to verses 20 and 21. He says, But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. 
So his admonitions here are very telling. Often the tendency of Christians in in the face of theological error is to simply devote themselves to exposing it. Thinking that if we've written a discernment blog or we've told somebody how bad this false teacher is, then we've done enough. And so a lot of times, especially Reformed Christians, like to pride ourselves on being able to break down bad arguments or bad, bad theology. And so Jude is saying... No, don't just do that. That may, may have a place in the church, but now let's turn forward. Let's actually build on what we should do instead. Let's not beat a dead horse, but let's, let's give some, some real practical applications here. So build yourselves up in your most holy faith. In other words, devote yourselves to personal and corporate growth in your most holy faith. Here, faith does not refer to your personal trust, your faith in Christ, you might say, but it refers to the body of teaching that Christianity is. This is the faith once for all entrusted to the saints, as verse 3 puts it. And so, in other words, we are to withstand the draw to lazy Christianity by rooting ourselves in the truth of God's Word. The more that we know the gospel and the truth of the gospel, the more insulated and and immune we are to false teaching. And so we need to understanding then, or deepen our understanding of Christian teaching. We need to grow as we understand theology and the richness of God's Word. So this means, of course, that we should study the Word of God. We should make it a first priority in our lives to know not just the famous verses, but the intricacies, the pattern, how it all unfolds, God's redemptive history. So we should familiarize and acquaint ourselves deeply with the Word. But it has also mean, mean, meant in the church history, in the history of the church, that we should deepen our understanding of the historic understanding of the church. We should familiarize ourselves with how the church has often understood Scripture everywhere, always, and by all people. So this, of course, means we should turn to the creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. We should learn early church history, medieval church history, and, of course, reformational history. And this is a part of our heritage as a Reformed and Protestant church. Just because we aren't Roman Catholic doesn't mean that we don't cling tooth and nail to the historic understanding of the church. In fact, we are not Roman Catholic precisely because we hold to the early understanding of Christianity. We would say, as Reformed Christians, that it's the the Catholic Church that has innovated theology in ways in which we have sought to remain as pure as possible, not only to the Bible, but to the original church, the, the first 500 or so years of the church. This is what Reformed Christianity is all about. Often, as I would learn in seminary many years ago, Calvin would get in debates with, with, with Catholics of his time, and he would be able to outquote from memory the church fathers and show that the church fathers were on the side of the Reformers. And the reason for, for knowing church history is not just because it's interesting or it's fun. Maybe you think it's boring, and I, I, I would leave that to you. That, that would be your own opinion. But it's helpful not just because it's interesting, but because it's helpful for us to properly understand Scripture. This is why the Protestant historian and theologian and scientist, sort of a mastermind, named Alistair McGrath, writes this on the importance of church history. 
He says, rediscovering the corporate and historic nature of the Christian faith reduces the danger of entire communities of faith being misled by charismatic individuals and affirms the ongoing importance of the Christian past as a stabilizing influence in potentially turbulent times. Tradition is like a filter which allows us to identify suspect teachings immediately. So we must build ourselves up in the faith, both in the Bible and in historic Christian theology. But I also want to suggest that building ourselves up in the faith isn't merely an intellectual game we play. It's not just about using our brains, our minds. We are not just brains on sticks. We are embodied creatures. So it's important also to build ourselves up in the faith with the practices of the church. This, of course, and maybe most importantly, means reading and praying daily, digging into God's Word, hearing from Him and praying to Him. And, of course, it includes Lord's Day worship, being here in this place right now, committing ourselves as far as we are able to be together in the house of the Lord. And I respect those who have made the decision today to not be. It's, that's an okay decision. But it's a good practice to be here as we are able to. And this, of course, also means fasting and feasting. Times of of fasting, such as we are in right now in the season of Lent. And then times of feasting and maybe practicing hospitality, inviting people to our house to warmly welcome them around the table. And evangelism, committing ourselves to reaching out to the lost, to those who need desperately to hear good news. And, of course, means taking care of people who are marginalized, serving the poor, and so on. These are all ways in which Christians should be living, to build themselves up in the faith. We do not build ourselves just by studying books, but we build ourselves up in our faith by giving ourselves to practices. And this is what I often tell my kids, the best way to stay a Christian your whole life is to be a Christian every day. So back to what Jude says. Uh, We see three more interesting words. He doesn't just say, build yourselves up in the faith. He says, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. What he means by the word your is that it is totally different from their faith. The faith of these false teachers. So he wants to make a distinction there. And what he means by the words most holy is that this true faith, the true gospel, leads to holy living. Teaching that that leads to unholy living means that there's something wrong with that teaching, with that understanding of grace. And so we must understand the gospel to lead us to holiness. Therefore, it's a holy faith. And then he explains right after this in verse 19, pray in the Holy Spirit. Of course, this is one of the primary ways to build ourselves up in this faith, to pray often in the Holy Spirit. And he You'll note that he just said in verses prior that these false teachers are devoid of the Spirit. They do not have the Spirit, but you must pray in the Holy Spirit. And this doesn't mean necessarily praying in the Holy Spirit in the way that we would pray in tongues or anything of that sort. Because we can look at what Paul says in Ephesians 6 where Paul says pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And so it's knowledgeable and understood prayers to God that are prayers in the Spirit. So we might say that prayer in the Spirit is is Spirit-guided, Spirit-empowered, Spirit-inspired prayer to God. 
And this is the kind of prayer that will help us to stand fast when we're faced with threats as Christians, when we're faced especially with this tendency towards lazy Christianity. And so in this same vein, in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, Paul writes this to the church there. Rejoice in the Lord always. This is, this is important for us to hear today especially. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a tremendous encouragement to heavy hearts weighed down by the anxieties of this world and by the struggles of this world. Pray to God. So then Jude continues in verse 21. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. And here he forms an interesting pair of ideas. At the beginning of the book of Jude, which we haven't read, he says that you are kept. You are kept by Christ. You are called, you are loved, and you are kept. And now he says to keep yourselves in God's love. These are two interesting ideas. Often, if we overemphasize the fact that God keeps us, it will lead us to spiritual laziness, thinking we have nothing to do. God is the one only who has to work out my salvation. And if we think only and overemphasize the fact that we need to keep ourselves, we can be led to deep spiritual anxiety. But holding both of these up at the same time is the way to true comfort and peace and knowing that, yes, I must, I must work. I must keep myself in this faith. But I know that the only reason I'm able to is because, because God keeps me first. And then this, this is all about keeping ourselves. What does Jude then say about how we should reach out to others? And this is the third and final part of, of, the, of what he says. Rescue others is a, is a way we could summarize it. So verses 22 and 23. Be merciful to those who doubt. That's the first thing we see. Another translation of this might be, be merciful to those who dispute or to those who are wavering on the edge. They're hearing what these false teachers are saying. They're being prone to lazy Christianity, to not worrying about living a holy life, thinking, that oh, God's grace has covered me and I don't have to worry anymore. He says, be merciful to these people. We don't need to go on a personal crusade to harshly rebuke them. We need to, with with gentleness, approach them and ask them and and help them see that God's grace is meant to lead to holiness. It's meant to to live a new life, the new life that Paul talks about in Romans 6. And so we ought to approach them wisely, with tact and with care and mercy. But then he says there's another group. Snatch others from the fire and save them. So this group, maybe, are those who are, have moved beyond this, this wavering stage and have now really begun to capitulate to antinomian, antinomianism or lazy Christianity. So for these people, Jude then strikes a stronger tone of urgency. Snatch others from the fire and save them. In such a situation, there's no time for playing games. There's no time for, for asking them uh, like how you'd want, you'd want to do that. It's the same way when a child is asleep in a house that is on fire. Does the parent knock on the door and say, Hey, I'm sorry to wake you up. Don't want to do this right now. Uh, if you want to keep sleeping, go right ahead. 
No, the parent breaks in, grabs the child and rescues them and snatches them from, 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 from harm's way. And so this, this isn't an excuse, however, to, to be judgmental, to, to be the sort of person that is condescending or looks down on others when we see them living in this way. But we should be careful to reach out to them and to urgently take care of them when we see others and friends of ours and maybe even ourselves walking this way, walking in a way that treats the grace of God as the license for sin. And then he says to the final group, to others... Show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the garment stained by corrupted flesh. This, I think, is probably referring to the false teachers themselves and likely means that we should be merciful and, and for sure pray for them, all while being careful to steer clear of their sinful attitude and their corrupting ways. So he doesn't even want to approach their, their garments metaphorically because he does not want to be corrupted by them. So pray for them. Reach out to them, but do not get cozy with them. And so simply put, when we hear someone teaching that because God is gracious, we can continue living in our sin and living as if it doesn't really matter anyways, we ought to exercise serious caution in our approach to them. And when we can, to mercifully reach out to them and with wisdom to avoid their error. And so we have seen now Jude's plan then, when, for standing strong when temptation comes knocking. He simply says, remember the apostles' warning. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith and mercifully rescue others who are being enticed. And all in all, what we see is that contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints doesn't just mean defending it or reaching out to others, but it means also to take care of ourselves, to build ourselves up, make sure that we're in the faith, and so as we go here from here this morning, brothers and sisters, I want you to not only go feeling maybe punched in the gut a little bit, but to go, uh, to go in the assurance of God's love, to know that you can build yourself up in faith. Jude would not have written this letter if it was, if it was purposeless. He wouldn't have written it if he didn't think that this was actually possible for people to build themselves up in the Holy Spirit and to pray and to, and to strengthen themselves against the encroaching lies and falsehoods of what is happening maybe in their church. And so we should be careful ourselves. God, take this with you as well, God's grace, I've said this many times already, God's grace is meant to transform you. This is part of the goodness of the good news. God's grace is not just meant to give you a clean slate, God's grace is meant to renew you and to renovate you from within. To make you more and more like Christ. The Christian weeps and prays for holiness. To overcome their temptation. As my, one of my favorite theologians said, C.S. Lewis, you do not know how truly bad you are until you have tried very hard to be good. And when you know your badness... And you're a Christian and you want to, to glorify God in your life. You want holiness to be a part of who you are. And sometimes this can feel impossible. Sometimes it can feel like it will never happen for you. But the more you try, the more you fail. It's always feeling like it's one step forward, two steps back. But Jude says this is possible. That you can build yourselves up in your most holy faith. 
and pray in the Holy Spirit. And you can wait on the mercy of Christ as He will return soon. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we go from here, help us to take your word to heart, that we may apply it to our lives, that we would be people who take your grace seriously, who revel in it enough to live our lives in light of it. God, may you protect us, may you strengthen us, may you comfort us, especially with all of the anxiety and fear that we may be feeling. Would we take our refuge in you this morning and throughout this week. We pray these things in Christ's name.